Sarah. Hi, Alison. So let's start the show today looking east to yeah. Ukraine. Uh, the war continues there, yep. sadly. Yeah, yeah. And what's coming up is a deadline. The Black Sea Grain Initiative, which was a deal that was struck with Russia last year to allow some Ukrainian grain to be exported, since, of course, the ports were blocked at the start of the war. Many countries in the world depend on imported grain, don't they? Wheat mm -hmm. especially. And we've talked in the past on Spotlight about how Ukraine was the world's biggest exporter of sunflower seeds, for example. Yeah, yeah. So this deal is supposed to expire mid-July unless Russia agrees to continue, but it's not happy with the terms of the deal. Well, but in any case, last year, as the war affected Ukrainian ports and also Russia, another huge wheat producer, sanctions meant that buyers were wary to buy from them. Well, they many of them turned to France. Yeah, hardly surprising. Mm. France is the EU's biggest producer of wheat. Yeah, and most of it is shipped out of the port of Rouen, or Rouen, as we say in French. Mm. This is a city on the Seine River. Yeah, which runs through Paris, of course. Yes, yes, upstream. So in 2022, last year, after the war started in Ukraine, the... The port of Rouen exported 8.6 million tons of grain, mostly wheat and barley. That was a million more than usual. Mm. The port is Western Europe's largest grain exporter. The vast majority of grain that leaves this port goes to North Africa, some to China. Uh -huh. But Rouen is inland, so how come it can be a, a port? Yeah, exactly. The Seine ends about 100 kilometers away. The port stretches 15 kilometers west from the city center along the banks of the Seine. Well, I went to check it out to see how all of this makes sense. Actually, it's a river on a seaport uh, because we have the, the tide coming up to Rouen. It's a three meters tide every day. And we are also a river port because we are uh, approximately 100 kilometers inland. So we have this double face with the sea activity and the river activity. Emmanuel Gaborio is the agribusiness development director for Haropa, which runs the Rouen port as well as the ports in Le Havre and in Paris. A third of the Rouen port's activity is exporting grain, and huge concrete grain silos dot both sides of the river here. The grain terminals can store nearly a million tons of grain, and the port can ship out up to 110,000 tons a day. Haropa has dredged the Seine around the terminal dock so that ships weighted down with grain don't hit the bottom during low tide. It seems like a lot of work to maintain a port on a river with tides so far away from the open sea. But Gabolio says there are reasons to keep the port here, where it's been for a very long time. The city of Rouen was a big city for commercial activities during the Middle Ages and even before. And it's also a natural place where the boat could uh, stop even during the Roman times. So it developed with the city of Rouen, with lots of fairs, commercial fairs. And it stayed as a maritime port during all these centuries. But it's interesting because, you know, things modernize and it could be the decision as boats get bigger, we're not going to do this here anymore. Yeah, th there is a logistical and commercial uh, reason for, for the port to be here. When you are inland, it's easier to bring the goods to the port. Uh, there is less kilometers to do. It's uh, cheaper to, to bring the goods to one because it, it's closer to the fields. The grain exporter, when they choose to settle in a port, they choose the closest port to the field. The grain arrives from the fields by train, by small boats, and mostly by truck. Here at Simarex, one of the port's four grain operators, a truck pulls up full of wheat. 
The driver pulls into a hangar at the entrance to get the wheat tested. A mechanical arm positions a long metal rod above the truck's bed and plunges it in to take a sample. The sample gets sucked up into a pneumatic tube and drops into a plastic bin on the desk of an office upstairs. An employee named Elena takes it out. She runs her fingers through the grain looking for bugs. She sniffs it to detect mildew. And then she pours it into a machine that determines the wheat's protein content, humidity, and other aspects that will determine where it will get stored and who will buy it eventually. Yannick José, the site's operating manager, explains that trucks are directed to different parts of the terminal depending on what kind of quality of wheat they have. Different clients want different products, animal feed or human-grade wheat, and different qualities with variations in protein levels, for example. Cédric Berg, grain director for the Farmers Collective that owns the terminal, explains that protein levels in grain vary. The standard level in human-grade wheat is 11 percent. Some clients want more. Algeria, for example, wants 11.5 percent. Algeria's market is state-run, so they issue calls for tender for a certain quality. You then sell to them or not, depending on your capacity. It turns out that last year, we didn't have the right quality. So, either we sell it anyway and pay a penalty, or we can't honor the contract and we have to find a solution. Once the truck's load has been tested, the driver gets a color-coded card that indicates which silo it should be dumped into. The silos are storage containers. Here there are four concrete domes and 14 concrete cylinders that loom gray and imposing 50 meters high. The truck drives into a dumping area, and the driver opens the back and raises the bed. grain pours into a grating in the ground, making huge clouds of dust. Yannick José says the silos here are currently nearly empty, anticipating the start of the harvest in a few weeks. There's no ship to load today. One is docked downstream and will arrive here the next day to get filled with 26,000 tons of wheat. It will then leave for Morocco. It traveled six hours up the river to get here and will travel another six hours to get out, waiting for high tide. The grain market is very variable. It depends on what farmers manage to grow and on what consumers want. The war in Ukraine impacted the supply of wheat, in particular coming out of Ukraine and Russia. And then buyers came to France. For Emmanuel Gaborio of Haropa, which manages the port, this had an immediate impact on last year's season. When the war was declared, some countries were afraid of not having the grain uh, coming uh, to their ports, uh, countries in the Mediterranean, countries in other places of the world. So there are some uh, countries that chose to buy French wheat, especially during the last summer, summer 22. And we had uh, some new destination from uh, the port of war to, for example, we had wheat uh, to Iran, uh, Jordania, India, uh, wheat or barley. These were places that you hadn't been exporting to before. That we, we, we export. Usually it's most to North Africa, uh, like Algeria, Morocco, or uh, West Africa, Europe, uh, or China. But uh, this year we had uh, lots of new 
relatively new destination for the port of Rouen. And technically, it's nothing ch changing, actually. Uh, we are in a logistic uh, way of looking at the things, and the logistics stay the same. What's, but there were bigger volumes. Yeah, we had, uh, for the first semester of the grain season, there was 5 million tons exported, so from 1st of July to uh, 31st of December. Normally, that's what? Well, more around 3.5 at that time of the year. For, for the port operators, it's uh, when there are lots of goods uh, coming in, they need to be open a bit more than usual. But the strength of, of Rouen for, is uh, that we have very strong uh, equipment uh, for the grain uh, loading. So it's not a problem to have this amount of uh, goods at the same time. Why would people you know, with no longer having the export routes from Ukraine and Russia, they could have come here, but they could have come to any other grain export port in Europe. So why here? Uh, actually, the, it's the, the, the French position in the grain market that uh, makes that the, the grain are coming uh, from here. And this year was also particular because uh, the crop in France was very good in the north of France. So uh, we had a very good crop, uh, quality and quantity. So that's why the goods came here and that we had a very good grain season uh, in the port of Rouen. So it kind of is like war, no war. It still would have exported quite a lot here. On some level, you don't have that much control over how much volume comes in and out no. of the port. It depends on where it grows well. And yeah, we depend 100% of what is, what is the crop and what is the demand on the world market. There was a moment after the start of the war when the demand went up drastically, right afterwards. Cédric Berg of Cimarec says that the increase in the volume of orders meant more work for them, more ships to be loaded. They have dock workers on staff who have to be reactive. In shiploading operations, there are time constraints. A ship costs a lot per day. So, from the moment it gets to the dock, you have a fixed amount of time to load it. When there is a lot of traffic, you need to avoid making the ships wait. That means you need people who can work overnight doing overtime. And when there are no ships, there's nothing to do. That requires flexibility, both logistical and operational here on the ground. Interestingly, after last year's jump in exports, there was another shift at the start of 2023. Russia started finding clients for its wheat and now has actually taken away market share from France, like Algeria, which has historically bought French wheat. But this may not last. Wars, geopolitical decisions impact grain exports, as does the weather, rain and drought affect what France can offer. We are in a critical period because within a few weeks we will know what our grain quality in France will be, and that will determine who we sell to. And all this will come into play, along with other factors such as how the situation in Russia evolves. Everything is in constant flux. Our model requires a lot of flexibility. We move goods very quickly, and then, when we don't need to do that, or when the silos are full, we stop. There's constant adjustment. Interesting. Yeah, Sarah, I, I've been to Rouen, visited uh, the cathedral and the city centre. I mm. honestly didn't realise there was so much activity just a few kilometres down the river. Yeah, yeah, the port employs directly and indirectly tens of thousands of people there. And you might not know it upstream.
Hollywood, which, as you know, Alison, has its roots in France. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks to Auguste and Louis Lumiere, who invented one of the earliest film cameras, and Leon Gaumont, who founded one of the earliest film studios. Yeah, the history of cinema seems to be full of men. Mm. But there's one woman who has only recently been recognized. Her name is Alice Guy. She's known as the world's first female director. She was born on July 1st, 1873, so 150 years ago this week. And she made more than 700 films. Hmm. Very few of them exist anymore because they were made a long time ago. Yeah. Alice Guy started her career as Léon Gaumont's secretary. At the time, he and the Lumière brothers were more interested in using film to document regular <laughs> life. Those first films were of workers leaving a factory, mm -hmm. for example, or trains on tracks, documentaries, really. Yeah, just sort of filming everyday life. Mm. But Alice Guy saw the possibilities for storytelling with this new medium. Gaumont allowed her to make some films, she asked him, but he said it shouldn't interfere with her secretarial duties. Mm -hmm. She made her first film in 1896. It's called The Cabbage Fairy. Mm. It's believed to be the first in a series of three about where babies come from. Um, a version of this film actually exists online. You can see it on YouTube, although it's apparently a 1906 remake of the original because the original, along with most of her films, has been lost. So in it, there's a woman, I mean, Guy, presumably. She's in a patch of large fake cabbages. She pulls out two very small babies that she then proceeds to plop on the ground. It's it's all very strange. Yeah, well, they talk about babies being born in a cabbage There patch, you go. I mean, I think you? that's kind of where it comes yeah. from. But yeah. apparently this idea of sort of, you know, fiction, basically, was groundbreaking <laughs> using film. Bon, so she made a bunch of films. In 1906, uh, she made a short comedy, The Consequences of Feminism, it's called, in which men and women swap roles. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this one exists online. You can see it in the first scene. A woman addresses a group of men who are preening in the mirror. Later, there's a man who's harassed by a woman on the street. Um, a lone man walks into a cafe with a child and is told to leave. It's a woman's only space. And at the end, the men push the woman out of the cafe triumphantly, raising a glass to whatever they're raising a glass to. <laughs> Success. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting little film. In, hmm. in 1907, Alice Guy married Gaumont employee Herbert Blachier, who was sent to the U.S. to start a franchise of Chronophone, which um, synced audio to film. Turned out it didn't really work, didn't catch on. The couple used the studio space that Gaumont had built for this, and they started their own company called Solax. Guy was the artistic director, and she directed most of its film. So this made her the first woman to own a film company. Hmm. Solax eventually made enough money to be able to build their own studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey. This in 1912. They produced a wide genre of films, from comedy to action adventures, melodramas, One of Guy's films from 1912 is called A Fool and His Money. It's believed to be the first narrative film with an all-black cast. I guess at the time, white actors didn't especially want to appear on stage with black actors. That's true. That's yeah. true. It's actually a vaudeville-style film. The main character is in love with a wealthy woman. He finds some money, dresses the part, and manages to woo her. It's an interesting also little film. Guy's mandate to actors, though, was be natural, which was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, and really necessary because these silent films, they're just full of 
grand people doing grand gestures to make up for the fact that they're not speaking. And it's all a bit cheesy. Oh, it is, and it, you know, and it has its roots in theater. It, all mm. this is, you know, they're developing their style. Mm. Um, Solax was a quite a popular production company. The films were distributed in the U.S. and internationally. But Herbert Blacher, maybe feeling a bit overshadowed by his wife, created his own studio, Blacher Productions. He funneled a lot of the money into that and eventually left the East Coast for Hollywood, which was becoming the film center at the time. And he left uh, with another woman. He and Alice Guy divorced in 1922, leaving her to support their two children. She auctioned off the New Jersey studio, moved to Hollywood herself was unable to make it there, so she moved back to France and actually never made another film again. She directed her last film in 1920. And she died in 1968 at the age of 94, which means she had a lot of time to see how history forgot or ignored her and her work. Gaumont himself omitted her in a history of his own company, and she wrote an autobiography to kind of correct the record, but it was published after her death. Mm -hmm. And then it took decades for Hollywood to correct the record, as it were. A 2018 documentary called Be Natural brought her into public awareness, but she's still not a mainstay of film history next to Gaumont and Lumière, maybe as she should be. Mm, another hidden figure. Jean Bleu, cuir noir. Quand t'es arrivé, je senti mon cœur vibrer T'étais comme Johnny, Junkie Bronzage de L.A., cheveux blonds gominés Sarah, how many pairs of jeans do you own? Hmm, it's a good question. I mean, a few, actually. It depends on the state of, you know, patching and not, I mean, three or four, some with holes, some not. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not alone because, I mean... Most people probably have a pair of jeans mm. in their cupboard or maybe several. Jeans are one of the most globalized garments. So basically, when you think about jeans, you think about... Cowboys. What? Cowboys, right. Yeah. And... I mean, what else? Cowboys, Levi Strauss. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, for me, that would be the, he's the founder, right? Or the, yeah. the guy who first made them in California during the gold rush. Yeah, absolutely. In 1873, in fact, he and his business partner started making blue jeans. So they're definitely an American thing. But the fabric itself originated in France. Ah. Uh, the word denim is thought to be an anglicized version of de Nîmes, meaning from Nîmes. Nîmes is a city in the south of France, a medieval town, 50 kilometers or so inland from the Mediterranean. Yeah, it had a booming textile industry from the mid-17th to the early 20th century, and one of its fabrics was this hard-wearing indigo blue material called Serge de Nîmes, or Nîmes twill. It was used to make work clothes, and in those early days, in fact, the fabric was made from locally produced wool and silk, not cotton. Mm. The cotton-based denim was made first in Italy, in the UK, and then, of course, in the US. Now, Nîmes's textile industry more or less died out about a century ago, couldn't compete like many other countries in Europe with cheaper clothes made in Asia, for example. But looms are turning in the city once more. Thanks to Guillaume Sago, he's a 37-year-old entrepreneur. He quit his digital communications job in Paris in 2014 and returned to his hometown with the aim of weaving the fabric that had made Nîmes famous. So kind of a nostalgia trip. Yeah, to an extent, but not only. 
Although it's taken a while, his goal of renewing with the old know-how, making genes that will last and in a sustainable way, has borne fruit. Kind of like an anti-fast fashion, I guess, um, and maybe looking for a way to avoid you know, textiles full of chemicals and dyes. Yeah, because making a conventional pair of jeans is, as you know, a very dirty mm. business. All these chemicals, dyes, glue, and loads of water. More than 3,500 litres of water go into producing a single pair of Levi 501s wow. and for some other brands it can be twice that amount. That's amazing. Yeah. So I went to meet Segal and his two huge looms in his workshop on the outskirts of Nimes to see what he is doing differently. Guillaume Segal looks at the computer screen to check the progress of the loom that's banging out indigo denim here in his workshop. The machine needs surveillance, but more or less works by itself, weaving the warp and the weft of indigo and undyed threads on the diagonal that make this fabric so robust. While the machine pounds away, he turns to see the other older shuttle loom that's weaving just the undyed thread that will be used to make jeans for next year's summer collection. You're just putting the the threads back into place because they get mixed up a bit. Yeah. How long does it take to make the material for one pair of jeans? Uh, to weave uh, one meter, uh, around 10 minutes. Sago started the Atelier de Nîmes business in 2014. It was a, a old dream in the 2014. Uh, I just act my dream because I, I was working in Paris. I don't like what I do and I need to find uh, the way for me to make sense for what I do. To give your life and your work meaning. Yeah. And I quit my job, quit Paris and came back to Nîmes to bring back the Nîmes here in Nîmes. In the beginning, he made jeans using denim from Italy and a workshop in Marseille. But in 2020, during Covid, when he had time to think about these things, he realised what mattered most was bringing the production of the fabric back home. Our aim is to weave in, in Nîmes and to bring back the know-how here. Yes, to bring... But not just any kind of denim, a very specific kind. Yes, the high-end denim and the, the denim without glue and uh, without chemical product and uh, uh, something that's closer to the original denim and closer to the first denim. After a lot of searching, he finally managed to find two looms, but then he faced a big challenge. One of the big challenges also yeah, is, is to bring back this know-how, uh, because three years ago um, I didn't, didn't know... You didn't know how to use a loom. Uh, yes, I had to use a loom. Uh, I just see, yes, it's a beautiful uh, <laughs> machine, but... Uh, and, uh, so how did you find these people? I was lucky because I found uh, two retired men around Nîmes and uh, they told me how to practice in the, in the loom, how to see the good quality of yarn, how to calculate the diameter of a yarn uh, to make a fabric and they told me a, a lot of this. They were retired so there was nobody actually working on no. a loom that yeah. could show you you couldn't go to a class to learn. No, no, here around Nîmes there, there is no, no classroom with this. Most of the world's denim uses single yarn, a single piece of thread that has to be then strengthened with glue so that it can withstand the tension on these fast industrial looms without breaking. So here, this is 
some sample of, of a glued yarn, you can see stiff. You're holding this long, it looks a bit like a, a horse's tail, and it's uh, very coarse. And in fact, you're holding it and it's standing up by itself, so it's not like thread. Yes. Sago has turned his back on such mass production techniques, and instead he uses a double-twisted thread, like the one used back in the 17th century. He imports the thread from mills in the Turkish town of Adana, where the cotton is grown. And this is the yarn, the thread, and um, you can see they are much softer. It feels almost like silk. Yeah. And you can see, to have a stronger yarn, we make a yarn with two, two threads, yes, right. they are twisted. So you're separating out these two threads now, I can see. They're twisted together, so clearly, yes, they become yes. stronger without the need for glue. Yes, they don't need glue. And the advantage is uh, that when you, you weave with glue, you need glue. to remove the glue uh, by washing the denim after the weaving. And the cost in water is very big, yeah. and with solvent also. For example, for 700 meters, you need around 20,000 litres of water to wash it. And with our, our yarn, there is no glue, so you don't need to wash the denim. The Atelier de Nîmes now produces enough fabric to make 4,000 pairs of jeans every year. But because of the more expensive twisted double thread and all the artisanal processes, the price tag is higher than average, around 180 euros a pair. But they're made to last, just as the old Serge de Nîmes fabric has. The earliest denim garments are showcased in Nîmes Town Museum, the Vieux Musée de Nîmes. There's an 18th century blue denim jacket, like the ones worn during the 1789 revolution, and next to it, a denim jacket from the 20th century. The position of the buttons, the length and the overall shape make them look remarkably similar. You can't help thinking Levi Strauss was inspired by the revolutionary model. The museum's curator, Lisa Laborie-Barrière, says that is possible, but it's difficult to prove. The link is quite difficult to know exactly, precisely, uh, mainly because the archive of Levi-Strauss were destroyed mm. at the beginning of the 20th century. But it could be that some uh, denim came directly to the United States, or it could be because the denim uh, was exported mainly uh, by the Protestants in uh, England or in uh, Germany. This was just after the Edict of Nantes, uh, Louis XIV, drove the Protestants, the Huguenots, out of France and so they, they went to other countries. Exactly, and they took with them all their knowledge mm. to produce all the kind of Serge de Nîmes and uh, make it someone else because the Serge de Nîmes is made of wool and silk and the denim we wear today are from cotton. That explains also those di little differences. Back in the Atelier de Nîmes workshop, Guillaume Sago says he hopes to renew with Nîmes' old savoir-faire in other ways, making denim from locally sourced wool and silk like they did 400 years ago. For our future production, we are going to make a, a jean with wool and with silk to get closer to the historic denim. And we are going to make this yarn just near in France, in Brassac, dans le Tarn, in the same region, Occitanie. 
Despite the buzz around made-in-France products and President Emmanuel Macron's push for reindustrialization, Sago says he's not aiming for a 100% French product. His jeans are designed and made in a small workshop in northern Portugal, and he's happy with that. He prefers to go where the expertise is. We try to make here in France, but we have a lot of problems with uh, the finishing of the, the jeans, the problem of the, the factory uh, send too late the jeans. There is a big problem here. Now we work in Portugal because it's easy and the quality is better. It's hard to say that, but the quality is, is better in Portugal and, uh, and they have a good know-how. Hello. I bump into two young fashion students on an internship here at the Atelier. My name is Guzel. Guzel, you're wearing a pair of baggy jeans. Yes. And Ines, you're wearing cut-off jeans. But you're both wearing denim. Yes. Is it important that denim was originally made in Nîmes? I mean, yeah. growing up, did you know about that? I knew about that, yes. And it's important, I guess, to, to come back to the roots of denim. It really takes all the stakes on the ecological part I would say <laughs> and um, the fact that a gene can last more years than a usual one is really great point I guess. They're not cheap are they? No they're <laughs> not cheap. I guess if we save a little money we can afford them but it's true that we will naturally uh, buy jeans at prix prix. Like thrift stores? Yeah yeah thrift yeah. stores. Yeah. And you, where do you buy your jeans? Uh, thrift stores, of course. <laughs> thrift stores, of course. And <laughs> to be honest, that's where I get most of my jeans too. Doesn't show. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine though that these jeans that he's making at 180 a pair aren't exactly aimed for a younger consumer. No. To be fair, yeah, I don't think Atelier de Nîmes are targeting youngsters. You know, they're making this high-end niche product for people who are prepared to pay a bit more for having clothes that last and with a bit of history. Although, to be honest, 180 years is scarcely more than some of these very famous brands uh, with questionable, you know, ways of uh, of production. Sure. And Sago, by the way, has been wearing the same two pairs of jeans, one blue, one undyed, every day, alternating them, of course, for the last two years to just test how robust they are. And how do they look? Well, they look pretty good to me. I think they, they're wearing rather well. We've come to the end of Spotlight on France. Uh, we're a production of the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you like the show, go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You can send us questions or comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr or find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be back for the last show of the season on Thursday, July the 13th. You can get previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Oh, mm-hmm.
de la leçon Pas fait pour jouer le vie Pas fait pour jouer le vie Pas fait pour jouer le vie 